Toy fans, Tom from the Toy Lines Podcast here, and I'm inviting you to listen to a preview of our newest podcast, People of Eternia, the podcast dedicated to all the creators and fans of He-Man and She-Ra. Let me give you a little backstory. I was fortunate enough to help on the definitive He-Man documentary, and I was privy to some of the stories that got cut from the film. Naturally, the film dictates what it needs to be, but I love these stories so much that I wanted to interview the creators and bring these stories to light. Join me, Tom Romero, as we discover the untold stories of Masters of the Universe. Our first episode is with Scott Toy Guru Nightlick, the Masters of the Universe Classics brand manager. We will have a new episode of the Toy Lines podcast this week. Enjoy. Welcome to People of Eternia. I'm Tom Romero. For the inaugural episode of People of Eternity, I chose someone that has not only contributed to the Masters of the Universe brand, but has created a new legacy for He-Man and Company. Classics has not only surpassed every toy line that came before it, but is now the standard to which all other toy action figure lines dream to achieve. Through his hard work and dedication for Masters of the Universe, he has helped create the greatest toy line in the history of action figures. With over 300 figures produced, a new way of ordering direct-to-consumer, he is one of the pioneers of open communication with fans. Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Knightlick. Oh Welcome my to the show, Scott. Greatest toy line of all time. Holy cow, my head's exploding. Now you have uh, a new YouTube channel right now and your own business, Spectre Creative. I do, named after the most popular Masters of the Universe Classics figure of all time. All right, maybe not, but one of my favorites. Uh, yeah, and the uh, the YouTube channel is actually very much about my time on classics. I'm kind of going literally figure by figure doing uh, what started off as director's commentary as a blog that I did back at Mattel, but I think I only made it through like Scareglow or something like that. Actually, I'll be doing sh- recording She-Ra tomorrow, so I'm well into year two. You can search Spector with an O, creative, on YouTube to find it. And yeah, there's and there's a lot of videos just about the toy industry too, and how toys are made, and things that, if you will, like aren't proprietary to any one company. But you know, every action figure from a Marvel Legends to a you know McFarlane Fortnite figure are all made essentially the same way. So I do a lot of videos just kind of about the generic, you know, the the process, the tooling, and you know that kind of stuff. So if you ever want to know how toys are made, there you go. Check it out, Spectre Creative on YouTube. Yeah, it's a great site. I just learned about your 2016 line the other day. I didn't notice there was a spot for Star Trek figures for oh, Mandy Collector. Yes, that was just something that was kind of being discussed was uh, acquiring the Star Trek license, but I think it just never made it much. Most B sheets, you know, and mo- most a B sheet is basically a visual of what a line is going to look like or a figure. And I think what most people don't realize is they don't make it past discussion stages. So a lot of times those visuals are created specifically to have conversations, which is why the 2016 line you see in the B-sheet is very different from what actually showed up, I would say, on your shelf, but in your mailbox. Because, yeah, I mean, the B-sheet was basically to have conversations with management and everyone involved. And then that gets kind of whittled down. So, yeah, yeah, Star Trek was something we talked about possibly you know, looking at acquiring, but it never made it past conversation. What do you think about the new Origins line? Well, I don't have any in hand, so I can't comment on you know the physical nature of the figures. Although I'm definitely, I'm sure I'll pick probably Trapjaw or Scareglow up, or you know one of my favorite characters. In general, I mean, I, I like what they're doing, and I, I, anytime you can basically find a way to, I wouldn't say start a toy line over, but at least have a reason to reissue the main characters is a good thing. 
because they're the ones that sell the best. And, you know, with classics, we were down to like, you know, D-list characters, if you will. Although I do have a couple of recent videos about how we were going to kind of reverse that. One of the things, though, that just concerns me about Origins is the fact that it's aimed at kids. I, I mean, obviously, it's also aimed at us, um, of course. But even Marvel Legends and Black Series is aimed at kids. I think a lot of collectors don't realize that, that if you go into a Target or a Walmart and you see what's hanging in the toy aisle, the main toy aisle, Anything in that aisle has to do 80% of its sales to moms, kids, gift givers, dads. For, I mean, dads not for themselves, but dads for their kids. At least that's what we tell ourselves, right? And then if you look at things like behind the electronics section, both Target and Walmart have an aisle or a little end cap just for collectors. And that's where you see things like, you know, the NECA stuff and Stranger Things, things that absolutely aren't going to appeal to kids. So... If it's hanging in the main aisle, like Mar Motu Origins, like Black Series, like Marvel Legends, it's got to generate 80% of its sales, if you will, to justify what's called the like the, the in-aisle real estate. In other words, like each peg, each foot of, of stuff, no matter what it is, toys, toilet paper, scented candles, cereal, has to generate X number of dollars for the retailer in order to justify the space the retailer's giving it. So the only thing that kind of concerns me with Origins is that because it's being merged in the main aisle, that it's being aimed at kids primarily. And Do you think this new line will appeal to children? That That's exactly it. That's the nail on the head is, I don't know. You know, I mean, when the original line came out in 82, there was no content and it totally appealed to kids because the amazing box art that Rudy did, visual look of the characters appealed to kids. I mean, we all loved it as kids, even before the TV show. So will that happen? Basically, that's the question is, will that happen again? Are the visuals of the characters, your trap jaws, your Skeletors, your He-Man, your, your Tila's, visually, is that enough to appeal to kids? Or do they, you know, without entertainment? Because while there's a Netflix show underway, it's not out right now. So the Origins line has, as a selling point, if you will, for collectors, it's nostalgia. That's like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, no problem. Collectors will be all over it. But for kids, is the visual of the figures enough to sell them? You know, they may never heard of this character or dad or mom would be like, oh, I remember Merman when I was a kid. Check this out. But will it, you know, do the business it needs to justify, you know, the retail area, which is why we sold classics online because we didn't have to deal with that. And do you think the tie-in with WWE is supporting or hurting the line? Hurt like supporting Motu? Yes. Or like or Motu the brand or Motu Origins? More Motu Origins. Well, from what I've heard, the WWE He-Man crossover hasn't done that well at retail. I could be wrong. I mean, you could you could tell me I'm wrong, but from what I hear just in chatter with the industry, it's done okay. You know, which again, any crossover line is always going to do okay. I mean, even like the Transformers, you know, Ghostbusters line, or, you know, like Hasbro has a bunch of like Transformers slash movie thing they're doing. Like they just announced a um, Top Gun character, like a right. Transformer turns into a jet that's named Maverick, you know, and that's cool. But anytime you're combining two brands, it's tough because you're diluting both brands, if you will. You're not getting 100% of either brand. You're not getting a WWE figure. You're not getting a Motu figure. You're getting a half and half. I think they did it with Ghostbusters too, right? Didn't Mattel put out Ghostbuster? Oh, yeah. There's an Optimus Prime that transforms into a Ghostbuster like, so, truck. And know, then like, um, Hasbro just came out with uh, a Back to the Future Transformer. 
Yeah, yeah, gigawatt. I think is yeah, the, yeah. I mean, again, that's really cool. And if you're fans of both properties, you're awesome. But if you're only fans of one of those properties, that's where you get sort of the delusion or die diluted delusion, diluted. <laughs> I can't speak. Um, so you know, it helps in the sense that it, it you know does get the brand out there. I don't think it's going to compete with Origins. I don't think someone's going to choose like a WWE figure. Like if someone's going out to buy a He-Man figure, the Origins line, I think, is a different buying base than those WWE Masters. So, yeah, I, I don't think that like, they cannibalize each other, if you will. But again, without current entertainment, like without a movie, that's my concern. Like the reason that we never brought Motu Classics to retail is because there was no movie. It was always, like I always said, in a movie year. And in a movie year, we would have because there would have been recognition you know, of the characters. So that's my only kind of concern. So where did you grow up and when was your for- first exposure to He-Man? Well, I, so I grew up in Connecticut, where in Cheshire, Connecticut. It was a small town, but is now, I think, a larger town. And my first exposure to He-Man was my fourth birthday, where I was actually really sick. And I don't mean like, you know, COVID-19 or, you know, cancer. I just mean like I had a, I had a cold. Right, right. But enough of a cold that my parents had to cancel my birthday party. And when you're four years old and you have to have your birthday party canceled, that's like, you know, the most traumatic thing in the universe. So to cheer me up, my parents gave me my gifts early. And that was Castle Grayskull, He-Man, Skeletor, Battle Cat, Man-at-Arms, and Stratos. Wow. So you had and, half the vintage already. Yeah. I was like, like right in from, you know, day one here. And it was awesome. I mean, I was very skinny as a kid. So the idea of like a super muscular character was very appealing to me, I, you know, on a subconscious level. As an adult, I can reflect on that. And I loved it. I mean, I used to carry around Castle Grayskull everywhere. It was like my luggage. You know, I would just drag it all over the house and be in a basement, which was awesome. That was like my playroom. And then since my, my actual party followed up a few weeks later, once I was healthy, a lot of my friends got me more figures. So I, I remember I got Tila, Zor, I got that two-pack, um, a couple other characters. Yeah, and I just totally fell in love. I mean, the mini-comics, I, I was all in. I thought it was awesome. So, And uh, growing up, what other toy lines were you interested in? Star Wars was a big one. Um, I was definitely into Kenner Star Wars. I had tons of that. I got into a little bit of Transformers. Um, not the way I got – like, He-Man and Star Wars were my big ones. And then I think number three, actually, well, I know you can see behind me that the people listening can't. There's a, whoops, hold on. I like get out of the shot. There you go. You can see like a, a spaceship there on that wall with the, with the white wings. Nice. So that's, that's a built from a um, building block construction toy called Constructs, oh, which okay. was a girder and bolt system that Fisher Price put out. So you basically had like little nuts and then girders that you, it was designed originally to make buildings, but then oh, eventually wow. started putting out sets where you could make spaceships and military vehicles and tanks. And then they started putting out little minifigures to ride in them. And that was like my, I, once that came out, what I actually started doing was building spaceships for my He-Man and Star Wars figures out of constructs. Wow. So you so, always had that creative edge to you. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, yeah. So I used to, like, I, in fact, I even made transformers out of the constructs where, like, you could go from one wow. form to another by, like, you know, moving a few of the girders around. So that was, I loved constructs. And that was, that was definitely a favorite. Now, you also collect comics. I, I know you're a big fan of Eric Larson's Savage Dragon. 
I am. Yes, I've done a couple of videos about that on my. If you guys aren't reading Dragon, you should check it out. It's amazing. Yeah, but I've, I've my first job was in a comic book store when I was thirteen. So really? yeah. What what other comics were you into? When I was a kid, my very first comic, because I'm looking at it, it's on my wall, was Iron Man two o three. Um, sorry, I had to squint my eyes <laughs> to see it on the wall. Um, that my it sounds so uh, I wouldn't say corny, but like almost typical that my grandfather sent me from his basement at at summer camp. Uh, like a friend had left a bunch of comics in his basement in a box. And so he just grabbed a handful and sent them to me at summer camp. And I was like, oh, what's this? Let's check this out. And I read Iron Man 203. And I was just like, whoa, it was Denny O'Neill was, uh, was the writer. And it was it was actually what led up to the Iron Monger storyline. It was actually, no, I'm sorry. It was the tail end of that is what it was. Because yeah. 200 was the, was the Iron Monger. So it was the end of Denny O'Neill's run, and which is an adult I knew. As a kid, I was just like, ooh, flying guy in armor. Mm -hmm. So Did you always aspire to be someone in the, the creative market? When you saw your Iron Man, did you think you were ever going to write your own He-Man comics? Oh, God, not in a million years. No. Mm -hmm. And even when we did King Grayskull, the first Motu Classics figure, like I thought that was it. I thought like one figure. like and, and But I was over the moon. I was like, I made a He-Man figure. This is the coolest thing I've ever done is made one He-Man figure. I can retire. And speaking of classics, how, did, how exactly did classics start? So classics started, um, it was very like, serendipitous that, so I was at Mattel and I had started at Mattel. I was a writer in the Hot Wheels group. I wrote, I like, came up with the names for the basic cars and wrote the, the copy on the back of like play sets, you know, race through the dragon's head and jump through the fire pit and, you know, score a, a in the touch zone or whatever. So that was my first job at Mattel. And I had recently transferred over to the marketing group because I had pitched to management the idea of selling adult collector figures. I basically went in with like a box of NECA stations and uh, Disneyland Indiana Jones figures and some Savage Dragon figures I had and basically said, look, like all this stuff is being sold to people like me. I'm spending, you know, $100, $200 a month and almost none of it is on Mattel product. So How did they react to that? Luckily, very positive. The person that I, I pitched to was Tim Kilpin, who He-Man fans may know as not only the brand manager back in the 80s, but also the writer of some of the mini comics. So he, very similar to me, he actually started at Mattel as a writer and eventually became the brand manager of He-Man. So I think he saw in me kind of like, you know, a young him and really was impressed that like I brought models with me and I showed, you know, the market size. So he basically moved me by executive decision from the Hot Wheels packaging group over into the boys action figure marketing group to work on an adult collector business and start it. So the original idea was to just keep 2000X going. So this was like one or two years post the 2000X toy line and, and TV show ending. Huge fan of it. Loved the aesthetic. Loved the way the horseman redesigned it. Loved the show. Um, I mean, the show was amazing. And, you know, it ended too soon. So my original idea was just to keep doing 2000X figures. Uh, you know, as if like the line didn't stop with the idea that we would sell them directly online. So to test it, we were going to do a Comic-Con figure. And the figure we were going to do was King Grayskull because one, he was a big you know character at the end of the 2000X line. But two, looking at the parts that were available, what's called tooling, 
is there was a character, Ice Armor He-Man, who had really big boots. And looking at him, realized, oh, we could do a new cape and a new head and easily make King Grayskull without much tooling. He would be relatively inexpensive to produce. So we had that kind of set up to be a Comic-Con figure that we were going to basically do the first 2000X figure in two or three years. They had already had success at Comic-Con with Keldor and She-Ra doing collector-only figures for 2000X, so the stage was set. So we were basically going to do King Grayskull as a 2000X figure. And then completely unknown and without any, you know, realizing we were both doing this, the horsemen on their own had created a brand new look for He-Man, which became classics, which was the super articulated Marvel Legends-esque six-inch figure. And they brought it to Comic-Con. And we saw this and was like, oh my God, that's amazing. We should scrap the idea of continuing 2000X. And actually, much like we said in the very beginning with Origins, this was a great way to start over again and do all the main characters who were the best selling with, because they'd already come out in 2000X. We would have been down to your King Grey Skulls and your, you know, two Vars and Badras and all that kind of stuff. But now if we started over, we could do everybody. So we scrapped the plans to do Ice Armor He-Man as King Grey Skull in 2000X and decided instead to just do a brand new line, but we would still start with King Grey Skull and just use this new design, this new buck that the horsemen made. And that's basically what became Masters of the Universe Classics. Now, why wasn't the decision to take Classics to retail? The short answer is there was no interest. Um, retail had basically just got burned by 2000X, and to them, He-Man was a failed line, essentially. You know, it didn't sell. So retail had absolutely no interest in another He-Man line that didn't have a cartoon. The only reason 2000X made it in is it had a cartoon. So, yeah, there was the only way we were going to get Masters of the Universe figures to fans was by selling them directly. I had basically set up what became Maddie Collector and the idea of doing more He-Man toys. At the same time, the Horsemen had come up with this new buff, which fit perfectly into those plans. And again, it was just serendipity. It was like, you know, all everything, you know, all high tide lifts all boats. And it all just came together as one magical toy line. During your time with Mattel, do you think Mattel had supported the line or was it just like, go do your own thing, Scott? It was much more the second. Yeah, okay. there was very little oversight in the sense of like, they just cared that the, the, the sales numbers were coming in and that we didn't have excess. As long as we didn't have like excess production, especially because in the first few years of Maddie Collector, it was off the books, meaning... When you know, for like, let's say, you know, you're the male action group and there's Batman and Max Steel and WWE and, you know, whatever other brands were around at the time. And each one had what's called a financial plan, meaning Batman has to do X amount of money and have X amount of SKUs and be placed in X amount of stores. Maddie Collector was basically just kind of a side project that I was allowed to do in addition to brand managing DC Universe Classics at retail. So, like, if you look me up in the Mattel system, like in the directory, you would say Scott Knightley, brand manager of DCU Classics. Everything I was doing on Maddie Collector was basically my spare time. A lot of it on the weekends at home. My wife can attest to that. So, essentially, you know, I'm very grateful for Mattel because they allowed me to do this. But in hindsight, looking back, I was like, what was I thinking? I was like doing the job of four people, but I was doing it, you know, for the love of toys. So... You know, while there was oversight in the sense of finances, that as long as we weren't, you know, we didn't have excess product that we couldn't sell, 
and we were bringing in money, it was great because it was what's called additive revenue. So if, say, Batman had a bad year, and let's say, you know, I'm making these numbers up, but let's say it did $10 million under its plan, but Maddie Collector did $20 million, and, you know, obviously these numbers I'm just making up for argument's sake. So those $20 million that Maddie Collector brought in, because it wasn't part of the plan, now boosts up the entire male action group. So now we have, so it makes up for the lack any anything that we didn't hit at retail, in another in another brand, if you will. So that's now, why management liked it. Now, do you think classics would have survived due to Maddie Collector? Like, did one need the other to survive? I think very much so. Um, you know, when I planned Maddie Collector, I thought that what was going to keep it around it was going to be the lifeblood was Justice League Unlimited. Because that was a line that was just wrapping up at retail. It had a very big following online with adult collectors. You go on you know, websites and you see all these customs and all these people talking about Justice League Unlimited. So I basically thought, oh, this is easy. You know, it's most of the figures because of the Bruce Tim triangular design are a new head and a new cape, you know, maybe new arms every now and then. But you could like 80% of the figures were very inexpensive to logistically make. So I thought Justice League Unlimited, that's going to be the backbone of Maddie. Maybe we'll do these six He-Man figures, you know, the, the core original, you know, Merman, Skeletor, Bandit Arms, He-Man kind of thing. And that's it. But Moju Classics took off and just, excuse me, and Justice League Unlimited actually didn't. So they basically did the opposite of what I thought. And yeah, Maddie could not have survived without Moju Classics and Moju Classics could not have survived without Maddie. It was a happy marriage. So I guess it's safe to say you were surprised by the reaction from the He-Man line, from the classics? Oh, I mean, everybody was. Yeah, I mean, we honestly, we thought we would do six figures and the Comic-Con King Grayskull and then we're out. Like, kind of like the commemorative series they put out for the 20th anniversary at Toys R Us when they re-released vintage figures. Yeah, we're like, okay, you know, we'll be lucky if we get to Merman. I wish we could have gotten to Trapjaw, but at least we, you know, did He-Man and Skeletor and... But yeah, then they just, I mean, beyond my wildest, the idea that we would do every figure in the vintage line and I mean, probably close to 300 figures and a castle and a snake. I mean, now Super 7 got Snake Mountain out, or they almost do. Yeah, never, never my wildest dreams that I think that was going to happen. So how did the mini comics come about? So they started in 2012, um, which was the 30th anniversary where basically Motu classes had been trucking along and management did recognize that we were in the third, we were having the 30th anniversary of He-Man. So as a gift, they gave us some non-media dollars, which is basically money to spend on promotions, which basically we had before that, we really didn't have like non-media money, meaning advertising money is basically doled out to brands based on sales. So if you're a hundred million dollar brand, you get X amount of media dollars to spend. Um, you know, again, making up the numbers. So for 2000, for the 30th anniversary, literally almost as like a gift, like a birthday gift, they gave the brand a very, you know, a small chunk of change to promote it. And so I looked, okay, like, what can we do with this? And we figured out from talking to Darkhawk that it was just enough money to produce three mini comics. So the idea was, oh, this is great. What we'll do is we'll finish the powers of Grayskull mini comic from the vintage line that never got finished. They were called part one of three, but only part one never came out. So it felt like the very much like a great thing to do because we, you know, we were finishing the vintage line of mini comics. We could introduce new characters that potentially could be in classics. 
And that was kind of always the idea because we knew we were running out of figures eventually. And yeah, I mean, that, that was, so that's how they started. And then after the success of those, we were then able to do basically one mini comic per year because we basically would take all of our advertising budget and put it into that one mini. Like we didn't have enough for three. That was from that gift. But in the following years, we figured, okay, well, instead of spending money on Mossman deodorant at Comic-Con as a giveaway, we could take all of our, you know, our small amount of non-media and make one quality mini comic a year. And each of them became a, each of them basically I thought was the last. Every time we did a mini comic, I figured that's the last one we'll ever do. Oh, we get, to, we get to do another one. Okay. Oh, another one. Okay. And eventually we did eight, which again, like I never thought we would do three. So yay. Were you happy with the way it came out? Like, did you, was that how you envisioned ending the storyline? Um, everything except the last one. Issue eight was a disaster. Um, and that was basically because I left and they switched artists because Axel takes a lot of time to draw and I didn't care because if he took a lot of time to draw, I would just push out who it chipped with. Right. To me, it was more important to put out a quality mini comic than to make a deadline. And I think the new team wasn't looking at it like that. They were looking at it like, oh, we have to have the mini comic by this deadline to ship with this figure. So they switched artists. And like, I mean, there's dialogue coming from the wrong people. There's characters missing. I mean, things are drawn incorrectly. Like, it, I always hear comic book artists saying, like, it's painful to, to look at things. like. Um, like uh, uh, one of my uh, Alan Moore with Wat- like the Watchmen movie, right? Like mm-hmm. he won't watch that. And I right. get now what that means when mm-hmm. they say, because like seeing someone take sort of your creation and do it differently or do it what you might consider wrong. It, yeah. It's like kind of painful to read. So, but mm-hmm. otherwise every, the, all the other ones came out amazing because Axel, especially when he came on board, we were not to knock Wellington who did the first few. We were basically doing it around the editors. So we were supposed to be going through like editors at Dark Horse and DC, but we would just call each other up and like discuss every panel. And it was much easier that way because that way we could get, you know, he would send me stuff before he sent it to the editors, which was great. And he's still a really good friend. So Axel's an awesome guy. Now looking back at classics, was there something you wanted to change or something you wanted to add before you left? I mean, basically 2016 was, you know, where things were going. You know, it was, it was designed to be a full robust year as opposed to we'll wind up only being like a handful of figures. We finished all the vintage figures. You know, it would have been great to get to like the POP variants and some more new adventures characters. I mean, there's definitely a handful of figures I wanted to get to. And most of them were in the proposed 2016 line, which you, you can see videos on those on the Spectra Creative YouTube channel. Um, in fact, I just uploaded part two this morning. It'll be up later today. So, and that talks about the non-monthly slots like Comic-Con and the add-on figures and the beasts and that kind of thing. I think the way, you know, classics wound up being really one of the things I'm most proud of in everything I've worked on and finishing the vintage line was huge because that was always the goal. So that felt great. So where did the idea of King He-Man come from? So, uh, well, he came from the, the, the dare son of He-Man pitch book, which I had, which I, I had at Mattel. And kind of part of the whole idea of classics was to bring the brand forward, to keep it going, almost as if the vintage line hadn't stopped in 87 and it had kept going. So really, you know, for for most people, when they think of Masters of the Universe, they think of He-Man versus Skeletor. 
And yeah, I mean, yes, absolutely. But we've had a lot of that. You know, there's, you know, 100 episodes of filmation of that and, you know, 30 episodes of 2000X. And I really looked at 2000X and where they were going with that show, how they were going to introduce the Snake Men and then the Horde and the idea that each year was going to be a refresh and something new. And that was both to keep the show fresh, but it was also a way to keep the toy line fresh. So, like, you'll notice in 2000X, they went from the red cards to the green um, He-Man versus the Snake Man series. And that was very deliberate for retail because retail likes to have fresh product every year. So both, you know, catch people eye and, you know, to move product again, that real estate of the toy aisle. So King He-Man was basically, it was the idea of moving the brand forward and getting past just He-Man versus Skeletor. And that the idea that eventually He-Man would go into outer space and have his new adventures, adventures, and then he would come back and, I mean, he was obviously Randor's son, so Adam was meant to be, you know, the next king. And then they, you know, and then and set up the idea of Dare and then Skeletor's son, Skeletine, who were vintage characters in these Bibles, these pitch books. It was just the idea of just moving the brand forward and getting to the next set of stories. So that it just wasn't always, he, you know, you can't do He-Man versus Skeletor forever. You know, mm-hmm. if you want to see He-Man versus Skeletor, you got a hundred episodes of Filmation to watch. Enjoy them. But for the storyline, for the mini comics and for the toys, we wanted to get to new action figures that had never been done and new storylines. And that's basically what King He-Man represented. Was it um, originally like a Mattel King He-Man idea or was that strictly the Filmation one? Um, it's a little hard to tell because like the, the pitch books I had were, you know, very wonky and liquid. I mean, not, you know, just liquid meaning fluid. Who came up with the idea? I couldn't tell you. I just had like, you know, a handful of pages with some visuals like Skeletine mm-hmm. was drawn, you know, once on his motorcycle and once standing. So Skeletine wasn't uh, one of your concepts. It was something from that you discovered. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I, I showed the art at Comic-Con at the fan mm-hmm. panel. I think if you Google Skeletine Comic-Con, you can see the art of him riding on his flying motorcycle. Yeah, I mean, he all, all of that, Dare, King He-Man, it all came from existing vintage material that never got produced. And I mean, the visual of King He-Man was basically the four horsemen. Um, you know, we just basically told them we wanted to make, you know, I told him I wanted to have a beard because that mm-hmm. way visually he looks older and looks bigger. And I told him to give him the scar over the eye, like the, you know, um, Anakin Skywalker, um, you know, 300 scar, if you will, mm-hmm. that everybody seems to get. And that was, you know, toys like movies and comics is a visual medium. So by giving him the scar and the beard, it was a visual way of saying time has passed. Things have happened. But other than that, I said, you guys design it. And they came up with the design of, you know, the colors and the armor and all that. I do remember Castle Grayskull being blown up in the last mini comic. Was there any story to that beyond that? Was that tower of power going to take over or. So if you look at the very last mini comic, the uh, issue eight, the one that I, that scares me. um, And the very last panel, what you will see is skeleton and dare fighting in front of a blue energy castle gray skull. So the idea was that panel was basically representing the next phase of the storyline and the brand where it was now, you know, it was like the Batman beyond phase, if you will, where now the torch had been officially passed to dare. He was fighting skeleton, 
you had advisors like Hero and King Grayskull, like in the sky. And then on the bad guy side, you had like Horde Prime in the uh, Crystal Prison. And Skeletor was supposed to be like on, like made of green flames. And Castle Grayskull was now made of green energy because the idea was they still had the power of you know of the universe on Eternia and had to protect it. So without the brick and mortar Castle Grayskull, uh, Tila as the sorceress and other mystic mages had created an energy version of Castle Grayskull that was made of blue energy to essentially do the same purpose as to protect the power of the universe. And that was also done because if fans really liked that, and let's say we got to another mini comic and you got to explore the energy Castle Grayskull, we could have taken the Castle Grayskull tool and offered it in clear blue plastic and sold it again. Yeah. So it was basically, you know, shockingly done to sell more toys. So we basically blew up Castle Grayskull so that we could sell Castle Grayskull again in a new color. Um, but make it, you know, we didn't want to just disco Skeletor or Castle Grayskull and put it out in crazy wonky colors. We wanted to legitimately give it a reason to exist in another color. So by blowing it up and then having it now be reformed with blue mystic energy, there was a reason for it to exist in a new color, a reason for fans to want to rebuy it, hypothetically. And it, again, just like King Grayskull with the scar, it visually pushed the brand forward. Now, I know I'm jumping around. I apologize for that. So Classics was going. It was successful with Maddie Collector. Why did you decide to leave Mattel? At the time, at Mattel, I was overseeing both Maddie Collector and Hot Wheels Star Wars, uh, the launch of it. You may remember th uh, that line. And by Mattel's definition, when you oversee two different brands and two different groups, you are a director. So I went to management and said, hey, I'm overseeing a retail line in the wheels group and a collector line of action figures in the action figure group. That's two completely different areas of business. That defines me as a director. Um, I haven't had a promotion in, you know, three or four years and I made the case and they said no. <laughs> so, uh, and at the same time I had my former manager who had left Mattel and was now at Jack's had made me an offer to come there as a director and to work on star Wars episode seven which I'd never really gotten to work on Star Wars action figures. I was working on Star Wars cars, you know, which is cool, but it wasn't Star Wars action figures. So, you know, I had a young daughter at home and I was hitting a brick wall with Mattel. And as much as I loved He-Man and want, you know, it's like, there's only so long you can work for free samples basically. Mm -hmm. And I had an offer on the table and I, you know, went to Mattel for them to match it and they wouldn't match it. So I had to sort of make the business decision for my family. Yeah, I mean, it meant less He-Man toys. I, I knew the moment I left. I'm like, I know this is the end of it. I mean, no one, I knew no one was going to take it over because the, it was never a job in the first place. Were you, you know, surprised that Super 7 took over? No, I mean, well, yes, but no. <laughs> Short answer, yes with a but. Long answer, no with an if. It was the right place for it to go because Mattel was not set up to do that. The only reason, as I kind of said in the beginning of the interview, that I, I, I was running Maddie Collectors because Mattel allowed me to do it while I was doing my day job, which was running DC Universe. It was basically a hobby of mine. I mean, there were, I'm not, I mean, there obviously were designers and packaging designers who were working on it, but all packaging designers and, and toy designers work on multiple, multiple lines. So doing like, and especially because the Maddie packaging was very templated. So it wasn't like, you know, they basically just had to slap on a new bio and a name. Versus, you know, other retail lines, you've got to design a new, you know, package every year. 
So it was minimal work for those groups. And because it was never officially a job at Mattel, you know, it's like if the brand manager for Barbie left Mattel, it would immediately create what's called an open rec for HR to hire a new brand manager. When I left, the only open rec it started was for someone to manage the Hot Wheels Star Wars line. It never triggered someone to run Maddie Collector because it was never like internally created as a position. So it going to Super 7 was great because, yeah, Mattel just wasn't set up to do this unless they could find another crazy person willing to do all this work in their spare time and, you know, take all this slack from fans, including death threats, which Mattel security takes very seriously, I found out. So, so yeah, I mean, it's great that it went to Super 7 because they were a smaller focused company that could handle it and had the bandwidth to do it. So, yay. Now, tell me about your experience with the fans. You were, in my opinion, you were the first people that actually went directly to the fans and asked, hey, are we doing this right? Are we doing this wrong? What would you like to see? Now, I know you took a lot of flack for from some of the fans, you know. The, I hate to bring it up, but the reverse Roboto shoulder incident. Nope, and <laughs> I mean, it, it seemed like for a, uh, for a time there, you were taking it from both ends. Like the fans were yelling at you. You were battling Mattel. Just could you elaborate on that? I mean, you, you basically hit the nail on the head. So like a, why, why was Mattel so resistive to He-Man? Um, I think part of it was because the line had just failed at retail. And it had already, it also had failed in 87 when they overshipped, you know, C-list characters and new adventures had failed. So from a black and white corporate standpoint, it was looked at as a thrice failed brand. So they weren't really excited to see it become a a fourth, you know, fail a fourth time, basically. But if I was just going to do this like small line, you know, directly to adults online and not sell it at retail, that was sort of under the radar, if you will. And it was so small it didn't justify a full-time brand manager. You, you have to manage, I think, something like a hundred million dollars of product to be a brand manager. And Maddie Collector was like nowhere, you know, even on the radar for that. So, I mean, Mattel did support it. I'm not saying they didn't support it. And again, it was like, as long as we were selling out a product, there was not leftover stock and we weren't losing money. And I was willing to do the work, which again, I thank Mattel for giving me the opportunity to even do it. Most companies, because they know, stick to your day job, manage DC Universe Classics or manage Green Lantern Theatrical. Like, don't distract yourself with this other thing. But they basically saw that I could handle it. And I was doing it because I love, you know, the thing is, I'm also a toy collector. You know, I think that as toy collectors, we look at these companies, the Hasbros and Tells and, and MGAs and Jacks and all these companies as, oh, they must be full of toy collectors, but they're not. They're basically full of people who are really good at making consumer product, but they don't necessarily know the difference between Hal Jordan and Jon Stewart. So it basically, because I was like a, you know, a fanatic, both a comic fan and a toy collector myself, I essentially wanted to treat the online community, the fan base, the way I wished toy companies would. Is talk, I basically did what I just wanted them to do. I, you know, I wish that toy companies would talk to us. So I said, I'm going to do what I... I actually created Mattel's very first Facebook page. Mattel didn't even have, like I did it. And then like a year later, Mattel created a social media strategy, but I had to be grandfathered in because I was already doing it before they had a corporate social media strategy, which was kind of funny, but that sort of, you know, kind of illustrates the point. So I was basically doing it because I wanted to do what I, what I, how I would have liked to be treated myself. 
And as far as fans giving me schlock, most of the things that I was getting, you know, schlock over, like Roboto's shoulders, weren't my, like, if you will, I mean, I don't want to say they weren't my fault, but it's like, it wasn't something usually that directly I could have done anything about. And two, even if it was, it's sort of like, I didn't, if they wanted to take pot shots at me, and but that meant we were going to get more toys, that's all that mattered. Like, if, if some people were going to be upset, some people were going to be upset, but at the end of the day, we got 300 figures, and that's, to me, what mattered. You know, if a couple of them didn't come out perfect, that was going to happen. And I, you know, it sucks. I'm, you know, I wish we, like we were going to redo Green Goddess in 2016. That was in the plans, um, you know, because the sonic welder, you know, caused the microscopic cracking in her legs, much like DCU Classics Wave 6. It was not cheap, clear plastic, people. It was a sonic welder. You know, so it's like I tried to fix things when I could, like, you know, get Sinestro's height corrected with a later release from his Wave 3 DCU release. But not everything was going to come out perfect, but the fact that we were getting what we got was amazing. And to me, that's what mattered. The idea of the He-Man movie, do they ask you anything? Do they involve you in any way? It's funny. At first, they didn't at all. And then they decided to give me the, one of the scripts to read. And so I gave them notes. And they were so blown away by my notes that they're like, oh, my God, we have to get this guy involved. He knows the brand. Like, yeah, I've been trying to say that um like like the notes basically absolutely blew like they weren't they weren't expecting succinct and on brand you know i think like tila's hair was the wrong color color it wasn't red and there was a scene i remember where um evelyn sneaks up on triclops who's like on a computer and i was like no he can see in all directions you cannot up on this character wrong so it's like those were the kind of notes that i gave them so I slowly started to get more and more involved. Um, and it even got to the point that I became friends with some of the people that were uh, selected or were on schedule to be the directors, like Jeff Wadlow. And I became really good friends. Uh, mm-hmm. I even went over his house on the weekend and read his script before he gave it to Mattel, you know, and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I basically got more involved. Like, they, you know, at first I wasn't involved. And then as I was allowed to give feedback. They kind of woke up to the fact that I did know about the brand and could help. And I just wanted to help. I wasn't trying to do this for a selfish reason. I just wanted the best possible He-Man movie. So. And did you see an opportunity for new toys that way or. Well, we knew that, you know, in a movie year, you were going to get like a five foot section at retail of of movie toys. And then my idea was I would flank that with one foot of classics because, you know, much like we were talking about in the beginning with origins, in a movie year, you could sell collect, you know, the the classic characters, uh, you know, because you've got content out there. So I mean, yeah, I mean, I was excited because a movie just meant content and more toys, and yeah, you know, I mean, there'd be a movie line that would be exactly like how you have, you know, Avengers movie figures, and then you have the comic book versions of them, sometimes side by side. So now, did you work a lot with Rob David, who's in charge of the media now? Yeah, so he came a lot. He came into Mattel while I was already there, and he. I mean, we, we also became friends. I mean, we, I used to go to his kids' birthday parties. They had kids the same age, and they lived around the corner from us. So, we became friends with him and his wife, who used to work for Sesame Street. Oh, um, you know, very nice couple. And I basically kind of got him up to speed a lot on the brand. He didn't know much about the brand outside, like the filmation show. And for the first like couple of years, he sort of just like let me do my own thing because he saw like classics was under the radar. It was its own island. It wasn't going to affect the movie. He was basically more in charge of building the movie or other new media, like mm-hmm. what's going on with the Netflix show. Mm-hmm. 
classics was just its own, you know, it's like, just let Scott alone, let him do his thing. I mean, he's, he was a great guy. He's very, he's still there. He's very creative. He may, he's basically managed to play the, you know, know how to play the Mattel system very well. Like keep your head down, just do what they tell you to do. Don't go off and do your own He-Man line. That's not part of retail. You know, I wasn't like that. I was always like, you know, trying to do new things and break the rules. I mean, not the rules, but like the established system for getting toys to market. And when you do that, you know, you don't always get rewarded with promotions. I think he's now like a, v- a vice president there. So, uh, yeah, I mean, good for him. You know, Rob, if you're listening, you know, fan of your work, keep doing it. Beyond Mattel now, you have your own company, Spectre Creative. Could you tell us a little something about that? Yeah. So uh, basically a year and a half ago, uh, moved my family out of Los Angeles, out of California, basically for a better quality of life. It was just, you know, I don't know if people follow the news, but even before, you know, COVID-19 and all that stuff, California is just getting, it's a difficult place to live. It's expensive. You know, social services are all over the place. And we wanted a yard for my daughter, you know, out, you know, a place where she could be outside. So we did a year long search. We found this beautiful town, Greensboro, North Carolina. What I tell my uh, nerdy friends are, it's uh, 300,000 people, five comic book stores, a water park, and a dinosaur museum. <laughs> so I like those odds. And uh, in fact, one of the comic book stores, Acme Comics, has been around since like 1982. One of the oldest ones. And Salesfish is another comic. And they're, they're, they're both amazing. They have like great. And in fact, I've even met, like I've become friends with pe- uh, people who, there's, there's comic book artists who live here. And like I've become friends with them, and it's amazing. It's like like all the nerds kind of get together. Anyway, I'm totally on a tangent. So the so no, we, we we left California. We found this beautiful community. We moved here, no job, no friends, no relatives, mm-hmm. just a new town. And I spent the first few months applying to like different ad agencies as like a marketing guy. And you know, I had some hits, but I had basically mostly people saying, "Oh, we don't have a you know open position for a creative director, but we have this one job we need help on." So I started sort of doing projects for companies and I started getting more and more of those. And I realized, oh, like my skill set of helping people develop product for retail is can work. And so I sort of set that up as a website and an official business, got an LLC and Spectre Creative, which you can see on SpectreCreative.com. The services I offer are basically uh, like content development, branding, retail development. So if you have an idea for a product, and you want to get it to retail or you want to sell it online on Amazon or your own e-tail. I manage several e-tail websites, kind of like Maddie Collector. Like I have that skill set. And mm-hmm. like one of the ones I manage is called Avocados Hair. So for those of you out there, if you're a female or you are dating a female or married to a female and you're looking for an awesome hair care product, honestly, this stuff is amazing. It's called avocadoshair.com. And it's my wife tried it and she was like blown away by uh, how great it was. So I manage their website. And uh, yeah, and, and I'm also I'm actually developing my own product line too. And uh, I have a, a you're on toy line or toy line. I got an animated series in the works wow, with uh, studios. So there's a lot coming down the pipe from Spectre Creative in the next couple of years. I got a lot of a lot of logs in the fire. All the experience I've been very blessed to have. I mean, I couldn't have done this without Mattel and Jax and Loot Crate and everything I learned from these companies. It's like everything has counted. There's like not one day at one job that now looking back, I'm like, wow, I never would have seen myself as, you know, using that skill set. But now I'm using it. And I'm so grateful for all the companies I've gotten to work for because they're all great. They're all different. 
and I learned so much. And now I, you know, it's like, I'm only, I feel like I'm just getting started. It's amazing. It's like, there's so much happening that I couldn't be a more excited and a better time. So check out Spectre Creative on YouTube and uh, the website. If you have, if you've got a product idea and want to help, help getting it to retail, that's what we do. Well, Scott, thank you for your time. I also want to take this opportunity to thank you for Masters of the Universe. I've always said every part of my life is associated with a He-Man figure. When I was younger, I had the vintage line just starting out in life. Then in college, I had 2000X. And now as an adult, because of you and your contributions, I have an adult He-Man figure. And then later on, when I'm 70, if I make it there, I have a King He-Man to play with. So thank you for that. Thank you for your contribution, sir. I know you've got a lot of stuff from, from the fans, but I just want you to know this fan is happy for all of your work, sir. So no. please take a bow. I, I absolutely thank you for the kind words. and But I definitely want to make sure, you know, people like Bill Beneke and Terry Gucci and Frank Varela, Jason Langston, the Four Horsemen, this was not all me. And I want I want to make sure, you know, everyone gets credit because it, it was a labor of love for all of us. We were all doing it, you know, in our spare time. I mean, you know, the, even the designers and the packaging guys were were doing it on top of their regular load. You know, it wasn't as much work maybe, you know, in some, some of the areas as others, but we were all doing it out of love and we couldn't have done it without Mattel's support too. I mean, Mattel did support it. Yeah, I don't want to say that they didn't. It was, you know, and it was great that Mattel supported this line and let us, they basically allowed us to have, you know, to do this as long as they did. And that was fantastic. And I'm so grateful for that and grateful for the fans because, again, I have the toys too. Like <laughs> I was basically doing it for the toys. I have a whole, you know, giant box of He-Man toys and a Castle Grayskull I'm staring at right now with Swiftwind on top. So, you know, I'm just as much a fan as you are. And so we couldn't have done it without the fans. If people weren't buying it, I always said this. Like, we'll keep making them as long as you're buying them. And that was right. true. Thank you guys, too. Thank you to Scott Toy Guru Nightlick for being on our first episode. And stay tuned, he fans and she ravers, for more exciting stories from the people of Eternia. Oh, 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 oh.